That's then um, led the government to ban various practices, but without saying that that's what they're doing. Hello, and welcome to the USERF Spotlight Podcast, a podcast series by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each episode, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Welcome to USURF Spotlight. I'm Jamie Staley, Supervisory Policy Advisor at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Today we'll be discussing the persecution of Muslims in Tajikistan, and in particular, the increasing crackdown on Shia Muslims. Tajikistan's population is predominantly Sunni Muslim at around 86%, while Shia Muslims make up roughly 4% and are primarily ethnic Pamiris located in the mountainous eastern part of the country, known as the Gorno-Badashan Autonomous Oblast, or the GBAO. The latest crackdown on civil society in the GBAO followed protests initially sparked in mid-May of this year by anger over the lack of an investigation into the 2021 death of an activist while held in police custody. The situation intensified after police killed a protester on May 16th, prompting authorities to begin what they called a counter-terrorist operation in the region. Since then, over 200 residents in the GBAO have been arrested and detained, including at least 90 activists. Journalists have been rounded up, and Pamiris have even been forcibly repatriated from Russia and given lengthy prison sentences. As we get into this discussion about what's happening to the Pamiris, it's also important to understand the broad legal environment for freedom of religion or belief in Tajikistan that affects all religious communities in the country. Religious freedom sharply declined in the country in 2009 after the adoption of several highly restrictive laws. The law on freedom of conscience and religious unions set strict registration requirements, criminalized unregistered religious activity, private religious education, and proselytism. It set strict limits on the number and size of mosques. It allowed state interference in the appointment of imams and the content of sermons. It required official permission for religious organizations to provide religious instruction and to communicate with foreign co-religionists and it imposed state controls on the content, publication, and import of religious materials. In 2011-2012, Administrative and Penal Code Amendments set forth penalties, including large fines and prison terms for religion-related charges, such as organizing or participating in unapproved religious meetings. A 2011 law on parental responsibility banned minors from any organized religious activity except for funerals. Since 2012, and most recently in April 2022, USERF has recommended that the U.S. Department of State designate Tajikistan as a country of particular concern, or CPC, for engaging in systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations of religious freedom. The State Department has implemented this recommendation each year since 2016, designating Tajikistan as one of the worst violators of religious freedom. We're joined today by Suzanne Levy-Sanchez, Suzanne is a visiting scholar at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University and a retired associate professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining me today on USURF Spotlight. 
Jamie, thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So to start with, can you give us a brief history and overview of what's been taking place in the GBAO over the past year? You know, what are some of the recent events that brought us here and what's the current situation there? Well, I think you gave a really good outline of, of sort of the overview of both the oppressive acts by the government that have gone on as well as the um, sort of slow increasing um, curtailing of religious freedom and activity. But that said, um, on November 21st, 2021, the government um, shot and killed Gulbuddin Ziobekov uh, because he had beaten up a prosecutor a year before. And um, they had not arrested him for that year because the uh, governor of Gornobarakhshan, Yodgar Faizov, had stopped that from happening. But the president of Tajikistan replaced that governor with Ali Sher Mirzana Budhoff. And Mirzana Budhoff had um, uh, no problems going and allegedly arresting Gulbuddin Ziyabekov. But they sent the prosecutor who Gulbuddin had beaten up and he killed him. Um, now, Gulbuddin had beaten up the prosecutor because he had uh, sexually assaulted a young woman in his neighborhood. And it was his role in the community to protect um, the people and the young women and, and, uh, and so on. So that started a massive series of protests in the region. And then from there to just make this very long story short, a uh, Commission 44, which was a group of civil society leaders was formed to investigate it. The government pretended like they were gonna allow the investigation and instead they closed the investigation and then that led to more protests and ultimately the protest on May 16th. The protest on May 16th also led to a massacre of um, uh, dozens of citizens in, um, in Roshan, a neighboring district, because they tried to block a military truck. And then the killing of a very uh, influential and beloved local leader named Colonel Mohammed Bokhir um, on May 22nd. Now, and then they killed several other important local leaders. Then from that moment forward was when the real religious um, denial of various religious practices of the Ismaili Shia were taken away. So let me talk a little bit about Ismailism, Ismaili Shiism versus Hanafi Sunnism. So Hanafi Sunnism, as you said, is the majority of the country. Um, it's a sect of, of Sunnism that um, most people practice, and it uh, has very different practices. It's it's than um, Ismaili Shiism. So Ismaili Shiism looks to His Highness the Aga Khan as a living prophet, um, whereas the Twelver Shiites believe that there's the hidden Mahdi who's going to come back. So the Ismailis believe there's a living prophet. 
Um, they are also viewed by many Sunni Tajiks um, as kafirs or apostates because of their religious um, views. And because Ismailism is a Shiite sect and also not considered um, legitimate. So that's then um, led the government to ban various practices, but without saying that that's what they're doing. Um, so they're kind of um, banning a number of uh, religious practices for the reasons of um, resistance or hooliganism or whatever the excuses are. Um, and, and Suzanne, I mean, as you know, you sharing about how this group, the Ismaili Shias, are distinctive from the rest of the country. I mean, uh, you know, it's clear that there are many elements driving the protests and the government repression taking place in the GBAO, and that, you know, while religion's not a primary driver, it is one of the dynamics in, in the mix here. I mean, why do you think the government sees this as such a threat to them? You know, there's there's several reasons for that. Um, so the, the general reason is they view it as a threat because there was a lot of independence within the civil society and the community. But in terms of religion in particular, um, His Highness, the Aga Khan, um, developed a group of development institutions, the Aga Khan Foundation, the Aga Khan Development Network, the Aga Khan Health Services, the you know the Aga Khan Educational. It goes on and on. It's this huge range of institutions. Well, actually, in 1994, I believe, or 95, the, the Aga Khan actually visited uh, Tajikistan in the midst of the civil war and convinced. Um, the then leaders to allow humanitarian aid to be brought to the Ismailis. And that was actually the beginning of when the Aga Khan Development Network institutions were brought into Tajikistan. After the Civil War and since the Civil War, the Aga Khan Development Institutions have provided about a billion dollars a year to the economy in development to Tajikistan. Now, these are um considered non i mean these organizations will help anybody so they're not based on just religion but they are part of the aga khan sort of network in general and so the government views that both as <clears throat> the aga khan his highness the aga khan and the associated institutions as usurping his authority on, on one level um, because the followers of Ismaili Shiism view him as their beloved religious leader. That said, the Aga Khan is very clear and in the religion, it's very clear that you need to be a citizen first and then an Ismaili second, um, which presents challenges if you are living under an oppressive regime of course. So that has been an ongoing challenge. So the president, so the president both feels threatened by the Aga Khan as a leader usurping his legitimate authority, but also views that many people 
something like one in three people um, uh, gain employment through the Aga Khan development institutions in the area. So there's also that threat. Then there's the issue of just plain old discrimination of uh, Ismaili Shiites as a as a sect that is um, their kafirs, apostates, heretics, etc. And me personally, I've heard um, uh, a number of uh, people in the country during my six years on and off there espousing such beliefs. So, um, th I mean, should I go on? No, I mean, that's great. That's okay. a great overview of, of all of that. Um, I mean, I had another question kind of springboarding off of that, you know, with all the, the human rights violations that the Tajik government has been committing, especially lately as it's been ramping up, such as rounding up journalists and activists and arbitrary charges, you know, it's also been specifically targeting the Pamiri's freedom of religion and targeting their religious leaders. I mean, what are some of the recent actions that the government has been taking to undermine their ability to exercise their faith? Um, yeah, well, how has this new level of repression really been affecting people there? So this is the most important question, isn't it? Um, how has it affected their ability as a community to stay cohesive and um, supported as a community? And the government has methodically gone through every layer of religious freedom and expression in the community. And I'll go through a few. They first started by arresting a, a two khalifas, which are religious leaders, and they were the most beloved and independent religious leaders. So that um, the people would not have the ability to go to them for um, helping them because the Khalifas help with weddings and funerary rituals and etc. So one of these, um, Khalifa Mozafar, he did the funerary ritual for Colonel Bokir, who was killed on May 22nd, and for that he was arrested. So even simply doing the funerary rituals of someone perceived as an enemy of the state um led to i think five years in prison for him without any proper um, judicial process on top of you know uh, arresting the religious leaders they have um closed educational institutions they have curtailed the ismaili tariqat research and education board which actually um oversees all of the ismaili um educational institutions in the country um, and in the Pamiras, they have closed uh, down various um, institutions with the Aga Khan Development Network. They have uh, limited praying to just the main Jamaat Khana, which is their, their version of a mosque. Uh, praying is something that is done on Fridays in general in the privacy of people's homes within small groups of families. And there is a fire ritual and there's various other rituals that are done um, that have all been banned. 
Um, also in the Jamat Khana, where they're only allowed to go, they have the GKMB, which is um, used to be called the KGB, and they are stationed in the mosque themselves, taking note of who is attending. So attendance has decreased radically. They also recently banned volunteerism. So what's volunteerism? Well, volunteerism is the fabric of their society in the sense that um, all of the religious activities and Jamat Hana and um, any aspect of religious institutions is they function on volunteerism, whether they're taking the care of the garden outside the Jamat Hana, whether they're sharing clothing that people have brought for people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged or food that has been brought to Jamat Hana for other people or um, any aspect, all volunteers have been banned. And that's a pretty big blow to the fabric of the way the community works. Gotcha, yeah. And I mean, from your experience in the region, do these kinds of actions have precedent? I mean, have you seen this level of repression before? And where do you kind of see it going from here? Uh, I have not seen this. I mean, so I was there during a conflict in May of uh, 2014. And at that time, I lived right behind a Jamat Khana that was for the neighborhood Mahala of Opide. And that's the one where um, Khalifa Mozafar was the uh, Khalifa for. And um, once or twice a day over the loudspeaker from that Jamat Khana, they, they actually um, sang out uh, um, phrases of Nasiri Khusrau, who allegedly brought Ismailism to the region. He's a famous philosopher and poet um, who was also an Ismaili peer and missionary. Um, so, you know, I would listen to this. It was, it was actually quite beautiful, but that mosque has been since then shut down. But at that time, even during the height of this pretty violent conflict, I wouldn't say pretty, it was very violent um, between the locals and the government, none of that was shut down. None of the Khalifas were arrested and frankly, you know, even as as one Pamiri scholar pointed out to me who would like to remain anonymous, he said, well, you know, even when Genghis Khan invaded the region, the religious leaders were off limits because um, whether they were Sunni or Shiite, they didn't kill the leaders. And that has been off limits. And he, he pointed out that during Soviet times, the reason the Soviet Union killed many of the peers. So I should say the Khalifas are deputies to the peers. So prior to the Soviet Union, the peers were the main religious leaders that answered to His Highness the Aga Khan, the living prophet. So, and then once the peers were all purged and killed, or some of them fled to Afghanistan, the Afghan side, the Khalifas really had no deputy to be a deputy to. So a lot of people assumed, well, that means their deputy to His Highness the Aga Khan. And, not really. I mean, they were they were um, they were deputy and became Khalifas in their own right. There was one main Khalifa that they all kind of answered to at the time. I'm probably going into too much detail here, but anyway, the point is is that um, the, the Soviet Union did kill many peers, 
and purge them. And that was because they were an atheist. Um, their belief was you had to homogenize the regions in some ways and um, purge religious beliefs and whatnot. But right. other than that, this has no precedent. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's really shocking to hear that, you know, at least in recent history, that uh, the targeting of religious leaders was off limits and that we're, you're seeing that change now. Um, so, I mean, what kinds of, re of reactions have you been seeing to these violations and trends from the international community so far? And I guess just with that, I mean, what additional actions do you think the U.S. government or the international community should be taking to urge Tajikistan to really uh, uphold its international commitments to human rights and religious freedom? I appreciate that question. Um, number one, the international community, I know many have been really bemoaning the fact that they don't seem to be doing enough. Um, on the other hand, I do want to outline that uh, the U.S. Um, government, the EU, the um, uh, UN Special Rapporteur, and a number of others have publicly stated that the Tajik government um, is not behaving in a way that is appropriate. Uh, recently, actually, the U.S. government reached out and uh, from what I understand, spoke to the Tajik government um, and admonished them for the activity. I can't remember. I, there was an article about it, so I apologize. I can't cite it directly. Um, but I think that ultimately, I understand the frustration with the lack of uh, action because the atrocities are huge. Uh, one of the big challenges about the atrocities is actually getting the information out from the regime because anybody that tries, they arrest or kill or torture. Um, so that's been a challenge, I think, in terms of proving the human rights abuses. On the other hand, Bellingcat and Rooftop um, have published reports that are quite damning. There's also a report of, uh, there's also a map through OpenStreetMaps. I'm not sure who did that. It could have been Rooftop. I'm not sure which which organization, but that um, map also uh, um, has geolocation points for every killing and um, action like the burning of the bazaar and whatnot. So I think that given the atrocities at this point, I think the international community actually has enough evidence to both threaten sanctions um, or sanction the regime itself. Uh, open an investigation into crimes against humanity, because there have been crimes against humanity between the torture and the killing, um, and uh, um, more broadly, um, allow the refugees a safe place to um, go to as they're fleeing. Right now, there are refugee camps in several countries, in Western countries that have been very generous. But I do know there are many other refugees who are seeking visas and assistance that um, are not being helped as much as they should. So I think there's sort of three things, sanctions, investigation, and assistance, if you, if you want to think about it simply. Um, yeah, no, that's great. I mean, thank you so much for sharing such uh, you know concrete, practical things 
you know, part of what USURF does is make recommendations to the U.S. government. So it's all very helpful. And we just really appreciate your work and attention to what's happening in Tajikistan. Uh, and, you know, with that, we'll have to leave it right there. I'd like to thank Suzanne Levy-Sanchez for taking the time to speak with us today and to share her expertise about religious freedom in Tajikistan. And you can find this year's USURF annual report chapter on Tajikistan and other publications and resources related to Tajikistan's religious freedom violations on our website. As always, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on USURF Spotlight.